This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric supracondylar fracture from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Supracondylar fractures are one of the most common traumatic fractures seen in children and most commonly occur in children 5 to 7 years of age from a fall on an outstretched hand. Diagnosis can be made with plain radiographs. Treatment is usually closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, or CRPP, with the urgency depending on presence or absence of hand perfusion. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence of pediatric supracondylar fractures, extension type is the most common, making up 95-98% to of these injuries, and the flexion type is less common, making up less than 5% of these injuries. In terms of demographics, supracondylar fractures occur most commonly in children aged 5 to 7 years old, and males and females are affected equally. Moving on to etiology, as far as pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury for supracondylar fractures is a fall on an outstretched extremity. Associated injuries include neuropraxia, vascular compromise, and ipsilateral distal radius fractures. Neuropraxia can include an anterior interosseous nerve or AIN neuropraxia, which is a branch of the median nerve. This is the most common nerve palsy seen with supracondylar humerus fractures. Radial nerve palsy is the second most common neuropraxia, and keep in mind that this is a close second. Ulnar nerve palsy is seen with flexion-type injury patterns. Know that nearly all cases of neuropraxia following supracondylar humerus fractures resolve spontaneously, and further diagnostic studies are not indicated in the acute setting. Vascular compromise can occur in 5-17% to of supracondylar fractures. Know that the rich collateral circulation can maintain circulation despite vascular injury. Now let's talk about some relevant anatomy. In terms of ossification centers of the elbow, age of ossification slash appearance and age of fusion are two independent events that must be differentiated. For example, the internal or medial epicondyle apophysis ossifies slash appears at age 6 years old, and it fuses at approximately 17 years of age, and is the last to fuse. Know that age of ossification slash appearance and age of fusion is usually accurate plus or minus one year, but varies between boys and girls. Now let's go over the different ossification centers of the elbow with respect to years at ossification, that is appearance on x-ray, and years at fusion, as it appears on x-ray. So to remember the ossification centers of the elbow in order of years at ossification, think of the mnemonic come rub my tree of love, where the C stands for capitellum, the R stands for radial head, the M stands for medial epicondyle, the T stands for trochlea, the O stands for olecranon, and the L stands for lateral epicondyle. So starting with the capitellum, this ossifies at year one, the radial head ossifies at year four, the medial epicondyle ossifies at year six, the trochlea ossifies at year eight, the olecranon ossifies at year 10, and the lateral epicondyle ossifies at year 12. In terms of years of fusion, the capitellum fuses at year 12, the radial head fuses at year 15, the medial epicondyle fuses at year 17, the trochlea fuses at year 12, the olecranon fuses at year 15, and the lateral epicondyle fuses at year 12. Now let's talk about the classification of supracondylar fractures, and the one to know is the Gartland classification, which may be an extension or flexion type. This classification system is divided into four types, and then there's a medial comminution type and a flexion type. Type 1 corresponds to a non-displaced fracture, however beware of subtle medial comminution leading to cubitus varus, which technically means it's not a type 1 fracture. The treatment of type 1 supracondylar fractures is cast immobilization for 3 to 4 weeks with radiographs at 1 week. Type 2 is characterized as a displaced fracture in one plane. 
the posterior cortex and posterior periosteal hinge will be intact, and the deformity is in the sagittal plane only. The treatment of type 2 supracondylar fractures is closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. Type 3 is characterized as a displaced fracture in two or three planes. This is treated most commonly with closed reduction percutaneous pinning or open reduction if needed. Finally, type 4 corresponds to a complete periosteal disruption with instability in flexion and extension. This is diagnosed with examination under anesthesia during surgery. Treatment of a type 4 supracondylar fracture is closed reduction percutaneous pinning or open reduction if needed. A medial comminution type of supracondylar fracture is characterized with collapse of the medial column and loss of Bauman's angle. This leads to varus malunion slash a classic gunstock deformity. This may or may not be associated with a sagittal plane deformity. Medial comminution supracondylar fractures are treated with closed reduction percutaneous pinning, often requiring a significant valgus force to reduce it. Finally, a flexion-type supracondylar fracture will typically have a mechanism of injury of fall onto the electronon. This is treated with closed reduction percutaneous pinning, but is more likely to require an open reduction. Moving on to the presentation of supracondylar fractures, symptoms include pain and refusal to move the elbow. On physical exam, inspection may reveal gross deformity, swelling, and ecchymosis in the antecubital fossa. Motion will be limited to active elbow motion. Moving on to neurovascular exam, this must be done before any reduction maneuver to be certain nerve or vascular injury is not iatrogenic, meaning that neurovascular structures are stuck in the fracture site. Be sure to evaluate for AIN neuropraxia, in which the patient will be unable to flex the interphalangeal joint of the thumb and the distal interphalangeal joint of the index finger. In other words, they can't make an AOK sign. Also evaluate for median nerve injury, which will manifest with loss of sensation over the volar index finger. Finally, radial nerve neuropraxia will manifest with an inability to extend the wrist, MCP joints, and the thumb IP joint. Note that the PIP and DIP joints can still be extended via intrinsic function from the ulnar nerve. Moving on to vascular exam, be sure to assess the pulse, which can be present or absent by palpation, or present or absent by biphasic Doppler pulse. Finally, be sure to assess vascular perfusion, where a well-perfused extremity will be warm and pink, while a poorly perfused extremity will be cold, pale with an arterial capillary refill of greater than 2 seconds. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and a lateral x-ray of the elbow, which is really of the distal humerus. In terms of findings, look for a posterior fat pad sign, which will be a lucency on a lateral view along the posterior distal humerus and olecranon fossa, which is highly suggestive of an occult fracture around the elbow. In terms of measurements, be sure to ascertain the displacement of the anterior humeral line and alteration of Bauman's angle. So in terms of displacement of the anterior humeral line, know that the anterior humeral line should intersect the middle third of the capitellum in children over 5 years old and touches the capitellum in children less than 5 years old. The capitellum moves posteriorly to this reference line in extension-type fractures and anteriorly in flexion-type fractures. As far as alteration of Bauman's angle, know that Bauman's angle is created by drawing a line parallel to the longitudinal axis of the humeral shaft and a line along the lateral condylar physis as viewed on the AP image. Normal is 70 to 75 degrees, but the best judge is a comparison of the contralateral side. Deviation of greater than 5 to 10 degrees indicates a coronal plane deformity and should not be accepted. Finally, know that angiography is typically not indicated in the setting of supracondylar fractures. Treatment of supracondylar fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes long arm casting with less than 90 degrees of elbow flexion. This is indicated in the setting of a warm, perfused hand without neurologic deficits, 
as well as type 1 or non-displaced fractures, and type 2 fractures that meet the following criteria. The anterior humeral line intersects the capitellum, there is minimal swelling present, and no medial comminution. As far as the technique of non-operative management, a long arm cast is typically used for three weeks and know that you must repeat radiographs at one week to assess for interval displacement. Operative options include closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, emergent vascular exploration and closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, as well as open reduction, percutaneous pinning, plus or minus vascular exploration. So starting with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, or CRPP, the indications include a type 2 and type 3 supracondylar fracture pattern, flexion-type supracondylar fractures, and medial column collapse. In terms of time to CRPP, this is dictated by the neurovascular status. So non-urgent can wait overnight, and this is indicated in the setting of a warm, perfused hand without neurologic deficits. Some argue you can treat an isolated AIN injury in a non-urgent fashion. The technique will involve splinting in 30 to 40 degrees of elbow flexion, admitting overnight for observation and elevation for elective surgery. Urgent or same-day surgery that you do not wait overnight is indicated in the setting of a pulseless, well-perfused hand, sensory nerve deficits, excessive swelling, a brachialis sign, or in the setting of a floating elbow. So the brachialis sign is ecchymosis, dimpling slash puckering of the antecubital fossa, and a palpable subcutaneous bone fragment. This indicates that a proximal fragment is buttonholed through the brachialis. This implies more serious injury, a higher likelihood of arterial injury, significant swelling, and a more difficult closed reduction. Finally, in terms of a floating elbow, an ipsilateral supracondylar humerus and forearm slash wrist fractures warrant timely pinning of both fractures to decrease the risk of compartment syndrome. In terms of the technique, be sure to check vascular status after reduction. If there is evidence of good distal perfusion, admit for 48 hours of observation. If the patient is not well perfused, perform vascular exploration. As far as emergent operative intervention, that is defined as within hours, this is indicated in the setting of a pulseless, poorly perfused hand. In terms of the technique, be sure to check vascular status after reduction. If the patient is well perfused, admit and observe for 48 hours, and if not well perfused, perform vascular exploration. Moving on to emergent vascular exploration and closed reduction percutaneous pinning, this is indicated in the setting of a pulseless white hand that is characterized as pale, cool, with no Doppler, following CRPP. Emergent vascular exploration and CRPP is also indicated in the setting of a pulsatile and perfused hand that loses pulses following CRPP. The technique will involve removing K-wires and reassessing the vascular status. Open exploration and reduction should be done if vascular status does not improve. Finally, in terms of open reduction, percutaneous pinning, plus or minus vascular exploration, this is indicated for open fractures, failed closed reduction, and a pulseless white or pink hand that is unable to be reduced or there remains a gap. In the setting of a failed closed reduction, open reduction and percutaneous pinning plus or minus vascular exploration is more frequently required with flexion-type fractures compared to extension-type fractures. Finally, in the setting of a pulseless white or pink hand that is unable to be reduced or there remains a gap, know that the gap might represent an entrapped vascular structure. Now, let's talk about some of these surgical techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, or CRPP, Starting with fixation, for closed reduction in an extension type injury, for posteromedial displacement, the forearm should be pronated with hyperflexion. With posterolateral displacement, the forearm should be supinated with hyperflexion. If pronation or supination does not work, try the opposite. Know that two lateral pins is usually sufficient in type 2 fractures, then test the stability under fluoroscopy. In terms of technical pearls, maximize the separation of pins at the fracture site. 
engage both the medial and lateral columns proximal to the fracture, and then engage sufficient bone in the proximal and distal segments. Know that there's a low threshold for a third lateral pin if there's concern about stability with the first two pins. Also remember that pins should be inserted with the elbow in flexion for extension type injuries and the elbow in extension for flexion type injuries. Again, pins should be inserted with the elbow in flexion for extension type injuries and the elbow in extension for flexion type injuries. Three lateral pins are biomechanically stronger in bending and torsion than two pin constructs. Indications where two lateral pins are insufficient include comminution as well as type 3 and type 4 injuries which are characterized with a free-floating distal fragment. There is no significant difference in stability between three lateral pins and cross pins. However, there is a risk of iatrogenic injury from a medial pin that makes three lateral pins the construct of choice. Speaking of cross pins, this is biomechanically the strongest to torsional stress. However, there is a higher risk of ulnar nerve injury of 3 to 8 percent, and the highest risk is if the pins are placed with the elbow in hyperflexion as the ulnar nerve subluxates anteriorly over the medial epicondyle in some children. You can reduce the risk of ulnar nerve injury by placing a medial pin with the elbow in extension and using a small medial incision rather than percutaneous pinning. No matter which technique you use for close reduction and percutaneous pinning, you will typically remove the pins post-op at three weeks. Finally, in terms of open reduction with percutaneous pinning, the approach will be an anterior approach of pulseless or if there's a median nerve injury. A lateral or medial approach can be made when the periosteum is torn, and know that the approach is never done posteriorly as posterior dissection can lead to avascular necrosis. In terms of soft tissue work, be sure to identify the median nerve and brachial artery. In terms of bone work, be sure to confirm reduction with the C-arm. And as far as instrumentation, two or three K-wires should be used depending on the degree of stability. Now let's end this review session talking about some complications. We'll go over pin migration, infection, cubitus valgus, cubitus varus, recurvatum, nerve palsy from injury, vascular injury, Volkmann ischemic contracture, and postoperative stiffness. Pin migration is the most common complication at approximately 2%. Infection occurs in 1 to 2.4% of cases, and there is an increased risk in age less than 4.5 years old. This is typically superficial and treated with oral antibiotics. Cubitus valgus is caused by fracture malunion and can lead to tardy ulnar nerve palsy. Cubitus varus, or a gunstock deformity, is caused by fracture varus malunion, especially in medial comminution patterns. This is not caused by a growth disturbance. This may represent a cosmetic issue with little functional limitations, however, has been associated with posterolateral elbow instability. Recurvatum is common with non-operative treatment of type 2 and type 3 fractures. Nerve palsy from injury usually resolves, and the nerves are rarely torn. Extension-type fractures have neuropraxia in 11% of cases, most commonly AIN neuropraxia, and the mechanism is tenting of the nerve on the fracture or entrapment in the fracture site. Flexion-type fractures have neuropraxia in 17% of cases, and the most common cause is ulnar neuropraxia. Vascular injury will have the radial pulse absent on initial presentation in 7-12% to of cases. There may be a pulseless hand after close reduction and pinning in 3-4% of cases, and if perfusion is lost following reduction and pinning, again remember that the pins should be removed immediately. The decision to explore is based on quality of extremity perfusion rather than absence of pulse. Arteriography is not indicated in isolated injuries, and the role of Doppler is unclear and does not change treatment. Volkmann ischemic contracture is a rare but dreaded complication and may result from elbow hyperflexion casting. The mechanism is an increase in deep volar forearm compartment pressures and loss of the radial pulse with the elbow flex greater than 90 degrees. 
This is rarely seen with CRPP and postoperative immobilization in less than 90 degrees. Finally, moving on to postoperative stiffness, this is rare after casting or after pinning procedures. Be sure to remove the pins and allow gentle range of motion at three to four weeks post-op. This typically resolves by six months. And know that the literature does not support the use of physical therapy. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. Aaron and Randy are twin eight-year-old brothers who fall off a trampoline and sustain supracondylar humerus fractures that undergo closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. Six weeks postoperatively, Randy is placed into physical therapy for elbow range of motion while Aaron is not. In long-term follow-up, how will Randy's outcome compare to Aaron's? And the choices are one, Randy will have a decreased rate of heterotopic ossification. Two, Aaron will be less likely to have a cubitus varus deformity. Three, Randy will have superior functional and motion recovery compared to Aaron. Four, Randy will have improved motion, but the functional recovery will be similar. And five, there will be no difference in functional and motion recovery. The correct answer to this question is five, there will be no difference in functional and motion recovery. So physical therapy has not been shown to be beneficial for the functional recovery or motion recovery of the elbow in children treated with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning of a displaced supracondylar humerus fracture. Displaced pediatric supracondylar elbow fractures are often treated with closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. The risk of stiffness is low considering the extra-articular nature of the injury. The utility of physical therapy to improve range of motion after operative treatment of this injury is not supported in the literature. Kepler et al. reviewed post-surgical elbow motion following pinning of supracondylar fractures in one cohort receiving weekly physical therapy versus no therapy. Better early range of motion was seen with physical therapy, but at one year, range of motion was equivalent. They recommended no post-operative physical therapy for patients without neurovascular complications, as the authors did not study patients with neurovascular problems. Schmel et al. performed a randomized control trial on 61 children with both operatively and non-operatively treated supracondylar humerus fractures. Children undergoing closed treatment of a supracondylar humeral fracture that was limited to approximately three weeks of cast immobilization received no benefit involving either return of function or elbow motion from a short course of physical therapy. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, Randy will have a decreased rate of heterotopic ossification is incorrect as the incidence of HO after supracondylar humerus fractures in children is low and has not been found to be affected by physical therapy. Answer two, Aaron will be less likely to have cubitus varus deformity is incorrect as a cubitus varus deformity is influenced by the fracture pattern and reduction, but not by physical therapy. And finally, answer three, Randy will have superior functional and motion recovery compared to Aaron. And answer four, Randy will have improved motion, but the functional recovery will be similar or both incorrect as functional and motion recovery has not been shown to be influenced by physical therapy. And moving on to the final question, for which of the following injuries should lateral pins be placed with the elbow in an extended position? And the choices are one, fracture with the anterior humeral line intersecting the middle third of the capitellum. Two, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced anteriorly to the humeral shaft. Three, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced posteriorly to the humeral shaft with an intact posterior periosteal hinge. Four, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus with complete periosteal disruption and instability in flexion and extension. And five, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced posteriorly to the humeral shaft with a disrupted posterior periosteal hinge.
the correct answer to this question is two, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced anteriorly to the humeral shaft. So flexion type supracondylar humerus fractures, such as the one described in answer two, that is a fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced anteriorly to the humeral shaft, should be pinned in extension. To quickly review, flexion type supracondylar humerus fractures are rare injuries. They're usually treated optimally and are more likely to require an open reduction given their displacement pattern. They're also more likely to cause injury to the ulnar nerve with the posterior displacement of the shaft. For flexion type injuries, pinning should be performed with the elbow in extension. For extension type injuries, pinning should be performed with the elbow in a flex position. Bouton et al. performed a review of flexion type supracondylar humerus fractures. They reported that although these are a minority of all supracondylar fractures, they warrant special attention due to their relatively high rate of a requirement for open reduction and their potential for ulnar nerve entrapment. They concluded that the severity of flexion type supracondylar humerus fractures may be difficult to appreciate on initial radiographs. Therefore, surgeons must have a high index of suspicion in the evaluation of a patient who has a suspected flexion type supracondylar humerus fracture. Howard et al. performed a review on the treatment of pediatric supracondylar humerus fractures. They report that the AOS recommends attempted close reduction with pin fixation for displaced Gartland type 2 and type 3, as well as displaced flexion type supracondylar fractures. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, fracture with the anterior humeral line intersecting the middle third of the capitellum is incorrect, as this describes a Gartland type 1 supracondylar fracture, which can usually be treated non-operatively. Answer 3, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced posteriorly to the humeral shaft with an intact posterior periosteal hinge is incorrect, as this describes a Gartland type 2 extension type injury, which should be pinned in flexion. Answer 4, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus with complete periosteal disruption and instability in flexion and extension is incorrect, as this describes a Gartland type 4 supracondylar fracture, which is usually pinned in flexion. And finally, answer 5, fracture with the supracondylar region of the humerus displaced posteriorly to the humeral shaft with a disrupted posterior periosteal hinge is incorrect, as this describes a Gartland type 3 extension type injury, which should also be pinned in flexion. That's all for this review about pediatric supracondylar fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.